Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 15th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Legislative Barbecue Brings Policymakers to the People by Andrew Fraley of the Jeffco Transcript. Lakewood Police Searching for Hit-and-Run Suspect Who Injured Store Employee by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Family Fun at Day Out with Thomas. Special Event at Colorado Railroad Museum by Nina Joss of the Golden Transcript. Miner's Alley Playhouse receives $2.5 million grant for new theater. Organization fundraising for second act at September 30th event by Corinne Westerman for the, by the Golden Transcript. Harvest Festival returns to renewed fanfare. 97th Arvada Harvest Festival featured dreary weather in a new parade route after two-year layoff by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Legislative Barbecue brings policymakers to the people. Whether it was for the free barbecue or the Jeffco officials, almost 200 county residents attended the 22nd annual Legislative Barbecue at Red Rocks Community College on September 7th. About 30 county officials, whether representative or coroner, and both incumbents and candidates alike, mingled with the crowd before each spoke on a prepared question. For some attendees, this was a chance to hear an official officials' thoughts for the first time and start their research ahead of the November elections. It's helpful. I'll still have to do my due diligence, read reports and and more, but it's a good start, said Lakewood resident Lorraine Davis. To her, the event was casual. She wasn't anticipating asking any questions, but there was a first attempt to learn about the candidates. Others, like Lakewood resident Valeria Palmer, saw a free annual barbecue event and thought it was, quote, worth checking it out. No matter the motivation, everyone involved believed the communication was helpful, whether resident, official, or one of the nonprofits that put the event on. The more we talk about mental health, homeless, and domestic violence, disabilities, the more we have important conversations to decrease stigma. And make officials see that, said CEO and president of the Jefferson Center for Mental Health, Kiara Kunzler. To her, it gives an impact to the voice of the people. The Jefferson Center was one of the four nonprofits that put on the event, along with the Developmental Disabilities Resource Center, Family Tree, and the Seniors Resource Center. I think it's fantastic, said County Commissioner Andy Kerr when asked about this communication. It gets a lot of the service providers with folks receiving services along with the people representing them. 
He said the forum models quote American civic responsibility, where even if officials and residents have differing perspectives, people can still quote sit to have a civil conversation. County Commissioner Leslie Dahlkemper, who's running for re-election this November, thought similarly. Even with different perspectives, better policy can come from it, she said. The speaking part of the event allowed two minutes for every candidate to answer a prepared question either on homelessness and domestic violence, elder care, mental health, or disabilities. Congressional candidates spoke as well as local. Donald Rosier, a Republican candidate running for Dahl Kemper's commissioner seat, highlighted his previous experience of two terms as county commissioner and that his priorities would be the same. I've seen the incredible things that you do day in and day out. All I have to tell you, you do it so much better than government ever do it, he said, addressing the nonprofits. Ed Brady and Regina Marinelli are both running for county sheriff and both spoke on homelessness. Brady stressed supporting, quote, the most vulnerable out on the street with mental health and addiction issues through compassion and accountability. He continued the state quote, needs to prioritize more funding to help those folks with their mental health and addictions issues. Quote, when we don't know what to do with the homeless, jail should not be the option, said Marinelli. She highlighted that, quote, putting someone in jail because they're homeless is not an option. Jerry D. Tulio, the current county treasurer, also spoke highlighting fiscal savings over the last few years of his tenure with Faye Griffin running against him this year. Jeffco Board of Education Briefs by Andrew Fraley Jeffco Thriving 2025 During the September 7th meeting, the Jefferson County Board of Education heard an update on the Jeffco Thriving 2025 project, which aims to update how the district defines a, quote, thriving student and school. The priorities presented by Deputy Superintendent Kim LeBlanc Esparza covered high-quality instructional materials and practices, students reading on grade level by third grade, each student being proficient at math by fifth and eighth grade, on track credit-wise as a ninth grader and every student having, quote, knowledge and skills for a post-secondary life when they graduate. The specific grade levels were called foundational for those subjects. LeBlanc Esparza elaborated that being on the correct reading grade level by third grade sets students on the right path further along, with math proficiencies at fifth and eighth having similar long-term effects on their future capabilities. She elaborated on how the district intends to on fulfilling these priorities, such as expanding universal pre-K and using high-dosage tutoring to help with grade-level reading and, quote, high-quality instructional materials for mathematics, along with training for teachers to use these materials to help with math proficiency. For our other, not purely academic standards, LeBlanc Esparza explained that digital citizenship and digital equity would be a large part of fulfilling, quote, an extraordinary student experience, as well as ensuring all students have access to effective intervention supports and systems. 
Board member Paula Reed questioned how best to determine actual competency of students and not just stress the importance of credits for students and teachers alike. LeBlanc Aspirza responded that further data like test scores will be used, and she highlighted another point of Reed's that students must also have input to be able to own their goals and data and further motivate them. Being data-driven as an organization does not mean that it all falls on individual teachers, pointed out Superintendent Tracy Dorland. The hope with being data-driven is that the district accepts responsibility, building systems and structures that support schools as they leverage those systems and structures to support students. Update on regional opportunities for thriving schools. Lisa Ralau, Chief of Strategy and Communications for the District, presented updated information to the Board of Directors about school consolidations. The original recommendation from the district on August 25th to the board was to close 16 elementary schools, including K-2, K-5, and K-6 schools, mainly due to under-enrollment and an excess of capacity. On September 7th, Ralau reiterated that each school will have a community meeting about the consolidations, one in September, one in October, as well as a one-hour public hearing, all before the board votes on November 10th. We just wanted to ensure people that we will still have space in our elementary schools for additional students, should they come, elaborated Ralau. She also highlighted a concern about bubbles of students and said we'll certainly have enough room. Matt Hanks, the GIS manager for the Planning and Property Department of Jeffco Public Schools, spoke on the projected amount of children that may come from housing developments the district is aware of in the Jeffco Public School area. He highlighted each area impacted by the consolidations, expecting about 192 future students from Bear Creek, 752 out of Green Mountain, 122 from Jefferson, 169 in Lakewood, and 84 projected to come from Wheat Ridge. Willow also highlighted that class sizes were expected to stay within the agreement made with Jefferson County Education Association, which represents educators in the district at 18 to 24 students for kindergarten to third grade and 22 to 30 for fourth to sixth grade. Family fun at Day Out with Thomas, special event at Colorado Railroad Museum. By Nina Joss. When Noah Silverman walked through the gates of the Colorado Railroad Museum on September 11th, he couldn't believe his toddler eyes. Surrounded by trams, he exclaimed to his parents, We really are in Sodor! With engines visible in every direction, it was one train in particular that justified Noah's geographical conviction. Thomas the Tank Engine. The popular locomotive cartoon character from the fictional island of Sodor smiled at Silverman and other train-obsessed kids as they waited to board. For three consecutive weekends in September, the Colorado Railroad Museum is hosting Day Out with Thomas, an event in which families can ride a life-size Thomas, the tank engine, and participate in train-themed activities according to the museum's website. I liked it, Noah said in regards to meeting Thomas. I think it was because he's my favorite engine. 
According to Rob Kramer, deputy director of the museum, Noah's reaction was similar to that of many children at the event. When you come here, he's real. He's on the train track. He's talking to you. His face is moving and they just lose their minds, Kramer said. Day Out with Thomas is an international event, according to Kramer. The life-size Thomas travels to locations around the world and speaks seven different languages, he said. Trivia shows, games, train toys, a hay bale maze, and a scavenger hunt keep families busy at the outdoor event. But the highlight of the day for most kids is getting to ride the train. The 20-minute ride around the property is led by Thomas and features an interactive story playing over the loudspeakers, according to the website. Volunteer Justin Growl and his mother, Lorinda Growl, drove all the way from Missouri to help on the train ride, Lorinda said. Whereas most families plan vacations around holidays or weather, she said they plan trips around whenever they can see Thomas. This is his 20th year of doing this, Lorinda said, gesturing to her son. This is about our fifth location, I think. Justin has autism and is Non-verbal, Lorinda said. He's loved Thomas since he was two years old. And since she has used the character to teach Justin everything throughout his life, even his multiplication tables. Volunteering a day out with Thomas is a great learning experience for Justin and for kids who meet him, Lorinda said. It kind of, it lets people kind of see autism in a different way, she said. He loves the kids. They're always so awesome, and they're learning about autism, and he's learning about how to be around people. While many might think a cartoon train engine would only excite kids, Lorinda and Justin show that loving Thomas is not exclusive to any age group. You don't you just outgrow Thomas, Lorinda said. Thomas is for everybody. Tickets for Day Out with Thomas at the Colorado Railroad Museum are sold out for 2022, but other locations, including Texas, California, and North Carolina, are hosting the event in coming months. Miner's Alley Playhouse receives $2.5 million grants for new theater. Organization fundraising for a second act at September 30th event by Corinne Westerman. As Miner's Alley Playhouse plans its second act in the Meyer Hardware Building, a $2.5 million grant will help ensure the show goes on. Miner's Alley Playhouse has received a state community revitalization grant to help renovate and move into the 15,000-square-foot building at 1103 Arapahoe Street. With the community's support, Miner's Alley Playhouse bought it last year for nearly $5 million with plans to turn it into the Miner's Alley Performing Arts Center. The first phase, which is scheduled to open in early 2023, will be a 150-seat starter theater to generate revenue. However, the longer-term plans include a 300-seat theater, two units of artist housing, classrooms, and more. This new beautiful state-of-the-art theater will bring the community together in a completely different way, making memories for our patrons and their families for decades to come, Miner's Alley Playhouse stated in an email press release. The theater group has been renting its current space for 15 years 
and performs in a 130-seat black box theater. Miner's Alley Playhouse is also hosting a fundraiser September 30th at the Green Center on the Colorado School of Mines campus. The Let the Sunshine In Gala will be from 6 to 11 p.m. and feature drinks, dinner, dancing, a live auction, performances by the Hair cast, and a special treat from the cast of A Christmas Story. For more information or to register for the gala, visit MinersAlley.com. Voters to decide whether to allow wine sales in grocery stores. By Jess Ball, the Colorado Sun. Colorado voters will have a chance in November to weigh in on the state's long-running alcohol policy war. The Colorado Secretary of State's office announced Friday that three ballot measures that would change booze policy in the state, including one that would let grocery stores sell wine, have qualified for the November ballot after their supporters collected a sufficient number of voter signatures. The following measures qualified. Initiative initiative 96, which would open the door for liquor retailers to be able to open an unlimited number of stores in Colorado starting in 2037. Initiative 121, which would let retailers who have a license to sell beer, such as grocery stores, also sell wine. Initiative 122 would allow which would let third-party services deliver alcohol. A fourth alcohol policy measure, initiative 135, which would have required local approval for liquor license changes in an effort to slow down grocery stores' ability to begin selling wine in addition to beer, failed to make the ballot after its supporters didn't turn in the signatures they had collected. Millions of dollars are already being spent in support of initiatives 96, 121, and 122. Including nearly $2 million from the U.S. Representative David Trone and his brother Robert, who own the national Total Wine and More chain. The Trones are supporting Initiative 96, which would let Total Wine open more stores in Colorado. Right now, liquor retailers are allowed to open only three stores in Colorado. Total Wine has two Colorado stores and will open soon open a third. Small retail liquor stores are fiercely opposed to the measure. Already on the ballot was Initiative 58, a measure to decriminalize and regulate the use of magic mushrooms, and Initiative 31, a measure asking voters to reduce the state income tax rate to 4.4% from 4.55%. Additionally, Initiative 108 qualified for the ballot last week. It would divert 0.1% of taxable income from the general fund to the state affordable housing fund, which would represent about $270 million in its first year. While taxes wouldn't be raised under the proposal, the amounts of money available for taxpayers' Bill of Rights refunds would be reduced by whatever is set aside for the housing fund. The legislative referred, legislature referred two statutory measures to the ballot this year, including one that would reduce state income tax deductions for people with higher incomes and use the savings to provide free K-12 school meals for all students. 
The other would require detailed information about how ballot measures changing the income tax rate would impact various income brackets to be more prominently displayed to voters. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Debunking white van myth of human trafficking. Many low-wage industries around America employ victims. By Dana Knowles, Brian Willey, Rocky Mountain PBS. In a laboratory housed in a red brick building near downtown Denver, the workers inside aren't running scientific experiments. The laboratory to combat human trafficking actually functions as a hub for information data, and resources for anti-trafficking efforts across the state, while also taking around-the-clock calls that come in on Colorado's human trafficking hotline. Anywhere from two to five calls come into the hotline on a daily basis. We provide the resources for the needs of trafficking survivors in Colorado. Survivors call looking for resources themselves or providers that are working for survivors. Sometimes we get tips that we pass on to law enforcement when requested, said Kara Napolitano, the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking's Research and Training Manager. Napolitano explained that human trafficking goes beyond what most people see in mainstream media and social media. I think one of the biggest myths that we see on social media is that people are kidnapped by a stranger and taken into a situation that would be sex trafficking, when in fact that is almost never the case. She said, adding that most victims are trafficked by someone familiar to them, which sometimes includes parents trafficking children. Oftentimes it's someone they know and love, so this stranger danger, white van marauding the neighborhood, gonna snatch up your kid's myth, is really just that. According to the U.S. Department of State, there is an average of 24.9 million trafficking victims worldwide at any given time. Statistics show that anyone of any race, age, or gender can become a victim. Human trafficking is defined as a crime of exploitation. Victims are pressured into providing labor, including sex, as a form of labor, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. But trafficking also happens in many industries, such as landscaping, hospitality, restaurants, construction, massage parlors, childcare, domestic work, factories, and janitorial services. Many of these workplaces are in low-wage industries with high turnover rates. A threat to vulnerable populations. Napolitano added that the most victims, that most victims are recruited. They are identified by the perpetrator or trafficker as being vulnerable, and people are vulnerable for lots of reasons. They're experiencing homelessness, they're using drugs, they're desperately looking for work, Napolitano explained, saying that many victims had a traumatic childhood. They're looking for love and inclusion, and a trafficker reaches in and offers that person the thing they need, that love, the bus ticket, the house, the, the job, and kind of hooks them that way. Caitlin 
Prishlak, the hotline and advocacy manager at the Laboratory to Combat Human, Human Trafficking, adds that the hotline is so important because most trafficking victims have a difficult time reaching out. There is a lot of stigma and shame around the experience of being trafficked and losing control over your life, Prishlak said. So when a human trafficking survivor shows up at the hospital or school, they're not going to be that person who says help. That also makes many human trafficking cases difficult to prosecute in court, explained Napolitano, who said only a few hundred cases have, have been prosecuted in Colorado over the last several years. Many of the people affected by these crimes are from marginalized communities, so they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel safe reporting the crimes, she said. They don't feel like they will be loved or supported, and in many cases they are criminalized because of crimes they were forced to commit as a result of their trafficking. Perpetrators of trafficking target and manipulate their victims, taking over their lives. If you suspect someone you know is in a trafficking situation, call Colorado's Human Trafficking Hotline at 866-455-5075 or text 720-999-9724. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online. Used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. Harvest Festival returns to renewed fanfare. 97th Arvada Harvest Festival featured dreary weather in a new parade route after two-year layoff by Riley Dunn. A new parade route and foreboding clouds didn't disrupt the 97th Annual Arvada Harvest Festival, which returned September 9th to 11th after a two-year absence. The festivities kicked off with a petting zoo and live music headlined by Hazel Miller and the Collective on September 9th, followed by the Grand Parade and Garden Harvest Fair the following day. A car show and community potluck were some of the events that concluded the festival on September 11th. Moved from Old Town... The new parade route along 58th Avenue was met with a warm reception among festival goers who lined the sidewalk hours in advance in anticipation of the parade, which featured performances from local high school marching bands and cheerleading troops along with floats and other entries. The Arvada Harvest Festival has been on hiatus since 2019 after the event was canceled in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and in 2021 due to a permit issue. The festival, organized by the Arvada Junior Chamber Foundation, dates back to 1925. Rocky Mountain Archtop Festival brings guitar lovers to Old Town, Arvada. Blue Guitar Exhibit, once displayed at Smithsonian, highlights weekend attractions by Riley Dunn. The Rocky Mountain Archtop Festival returned to Old Town, Arvada from September 9th to 11th, bringing nearly 1,000 
arch-top luthiers, players, and enthusiasts together for one of the world's only arch-top-only guitar convention. Jam sessions and live music performances filled the district throughout the weekend, while exhibits and lessons took place at the Hilton Garden Inn. The weekend focused on arch-top guitars, which are unique in construction and are sometimes described as a hybrid of an electric and an acoustic guitar. Archtops are under a higher tension than other types of guitars, which makes building them difficult, even for experienced luthiers. Arvada Historical Society Cemetery Tour set to return September 24th. Dr. Gail Gilbert, Lois Lindstrom, Robert Barton, among historical figures to be portrayed by Riley Dunn. The Arvada Historical Society is hosting its annual cemetery tour on September 24th at the Arvada Cemetery located at 5581 Independence Street. Tours will depart every 30 minutes, beginning at 11 a.m. and going until 2 p.m. Dr. Gail Gilbert, a former Jeffco R1 Schools board member, Lois Lindstrom, the founder of the Arvada Historical Society, and Robert Barton, the last town clerk of Arvada and first elected city clerk, will be some of the historical figures portrayed by members of the Historical Society. The event is family-friendly and free to children under the age of 12. Tickets can be purchased online at historyarvada.org or at the cemetery on the day of the event. Reading to Kill a Mockingbird in America Local Voices Jerry Fabianek Fabianek columnist. In her memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran, Professor Azar Nafisi described clandestine, clandestine sessions she held in her apartment with young women to openly discuss and debate the merits of works the Islamic Republic's morality squad repressed. Nafisi had been raised during the reign of the ousted Shah, who, despite his autocratic rule, allowed the liberal heir of the West to permeate Iranian society. After earning her degree at American universities, she returned to Iran after the 1979 revolution and faced immediate scrutiny. Despite enormous pressure exerted on her to wear the traditional garb prescribed by the autocratic male rulers and to cease teaching Western literature, Nafisi refused to buckle. Her novel is a peon to true courage. It is telling to note how some American morality schools, squads, in the guise of certain school boards, whose main purpose ought to be focused on creating and enhancing an educational structure that maximizes the full learning capacity of every student, hide behind the shibboleth that they are not banning books, but instead removing them from approved reading lists. Their explanation is a cowardly euphemism, a distinction without a difference. It simply changes a term or phrase to make the act sound acceptable, even benign, but without lessening its intention. Like saying frigging in lieu of hurling the F-bomb. Both mean 
copulating, but frigging has a venial sin tone, much like saying, gosh dang it, in lieu of you-know-what. Regardless whether a book is banned or removed from the list, it has the same effect. Censorship. Censorship knows no limits to where it is practiced, from Iran to American schools and school districts. The morality police and cultural warriors are unceasingly on the prowl, forbidding the teachings of classic works from To Kill a Mockingbird, The Diary of Anne Frank, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, to more current works that explore topics that shock uptight pearl-clutching morales and put them in a dither. A teacher friend told me she sees dropping books from approved reading lists as nefarious as banning books n because the powers that be are not only discouraging students from reading those books, but they are also discouraging teachers from teaching or recommending those novels. She notes that saying books are dropped from approved reading lists is less inflammatory than saying certain books are being banned. In so doing, she says, they and their egregious act receive less parent awareness of what has been done. The harm goes deeper, though, for it has, like so much else done ostensibly for the public good, disturbing and unconscionable unintended consequences. My teacher friend said she is finding that novel reading is becoming absent from the English classes. She fretted about how her own children used to gobble up novels in elementary school but barely read one in its entirety in middle and high school. I cringe, she said, when I think that my students will read less than eight novels by the time they graduate from high school. And I think I'm fairly generous with that number. This is in honors level classes. Banning classic works is more sinister than pearl-clutching mor moralism. It lessens, even demeans, the importance of not only reading, but also of opening the mind. It is about keeping people ignorant, stupid, and easily duped. It is, as Alan Bloom wrote in his 1987, the closing of the American mind, the closing of the American mind. To counter censorship crusaders, the American Library Association celebrates Banned Book Week typically during the last week of September. Its purpose is to celebrate the freedom to read, especially works some or even may consider unorthodox or unpopular. Autocratic rulers or leaders, whether religious or political or whether in Iran or in America, are dependent upon mass ignorance to prop themselves up. And if one does not see something heinous in that, it suggests they are clueless about what ultimately heinousness is. It's the closing of a mind which is like killing a mockingbird. A mortal sin. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Wins and Food for Thought, Essays on Mind and Spirit. He lives in Georgetown. Can we live with electric mountain bikes on trails? Riders on the range, Molly Absalon. The first time I saw an electric bike, better known as an e-bike, I was struggling up a hill. Suddenly, a silver-haired man came whizzing by in regular city clothes. I felt a wave of envy as he left me in the dust. 
That was probably five years ago. And since then, e-bike use has exploded. In 2020, e-bike sales in the United States for just the month of June totaled roughly $90 million, up 190% from the previous June. It's hard to remember, but regular mountain bikes didn't become commercially available until the 1980s. When early adopters hit trails previously used only by hikers and horseback riders, conflicts happened fast. People claimed the bikes increased erosion. They worried about collisions and scaring horses. They theorized that mountain bikes would frighten wildlife. Today, those same arguments are being used against electric mountain bikes. Once again, the controversy seems to step from the fear of change, perhaps some arrogance and maybe a little jealousy. After all, since I suffered to get to the top of the mountain, get to the top of the climb on my own, shouldn't you? In 2017, the International Mountain Bike Association, which had said that e-bikes should be considered motorized vehicles, softened its stance. Instead, it proposed that local land managers and user groups should determine on a case-by-case basis whether to allow e-bikes on naturally surfaced trails. Many members canceled their memberships. Some comments were harsh. One wrote, If you're too old to still ride the trails you love, do as many beforehand, reminisce about the good old days and encourage the young. Don't throw them in our public land under the bus. That kind of attitude does not bode well for land managers to find an easy compromise. So, what are the impacts of electric mountain bikes? Do they harm trails or cause more accidents? In 2015, the International Mountain Bike Association studied the environmental impacts of mountain bikes, both electric and self-propelled, and found no appreciable differences between the two in terms of soil displacement on trails. Overall, bike impacts were similar to the impacts of hikers. Horses, motorcycles, and off-road vehicles do much more damage to trails. As for problems caused by speed, traffic studies show that accidents and their severity escalate as differences in speed increase. But do electrified bikes go that much faster than traditional bikes? To find out, Tahoe National Forest measured the top speeds reached by intermediate and advanced riders using both kinds of bikes. Differences on the downhills were small. On uphills, traditional bikers averaged 5 to 8 miles per hour, while electric mountain bikes traveled 8 to 13 miles per hour. This was a difference, but not enough of a difference to cause more accidents, especially if bikers alert others to their presence and ride in control. Rachel Fussell, program manager of the nonprofit People for Bikes, said that more than a battery boost, speed on trails reflects rider skill as well as trail design. She believes that all users observing proper trail etiquette would avert most potential conflicts. Celeste Young has been a biker all her life and now coaches mountain biking. Her fleet of bicycles has recently grown to include an electric mountain bike. The most negative thing I've heard about it is, oh, you're cheating, she said, but it's just another way to be out there. You get an extra boost going up these really hard trails, so it makes a challenging trail fun rather than demoralizing. It's a puzzling notion that someone accused her of cheating. It would be one thing if you secretly put a motor on your bike during a race, but when it's an amateur rider going out for fun and exercise, how is having an electronic boost cheating? The whole thing reminds me 
a skier, on the controversy that erupted after snowboards first appeared at ski resorts. They were new and fast, and their rhythm on the slope was different than the rhythm of people on skis. We didn't like them, and I doubt they liked us. But we've worked it out. Now, public land managers face the naughty problem of where access to allow e-bikes and where or whether to segregate them to their own trails. Welcome to the crowded West. Molly Absalon is a contributor to Riders on the Range. Ridersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring discussion about Western issues. She lives in Victor, Idaho, and has worked as a wilderness educator, waiter, farmer, and freelance journalist to support her outdoor recreation habit. Venture into the woods at the Arvada Center. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. There are some names that stand on their own when you're talking about the theater, and Stephen Sondheim is right at the top of that list. So when the Arvada Center announced it was kicking off its 2022-23 season with his immortal Into the Woods, it was thrilling news. The production of this witty and powerful take on some classic fairy tales runs at the center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard through Sunday, October 9th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday through Saturday, 1 p.m. on Wednesday, and 2 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday. We spoke to Lynn Collins, artistic director of theater and director of the show, about the production, what makes it unique, and more. Answers were edited for brevity and clarity. What's the show about, and what makes it special? Into the Woods is an iconic piece of musical theater. It's a telling, it's a tribute to the genius storytelling of Sondheim and James Lapine. And these characters, we think we know, take on whole new life and relatable moments. Our production takes a new twist on the story and is set in child's nursery. We get to see the story unfold through the imagination of a child, and the story unfolds as life itself twists and changes. Tell me about bringing a production of this scope to the Arvana Center. It's always an exciting challenge to bring a fairy tale to life on stage. I am fortunate to be surrounded by the best artists and artisans, from scenic design and lights to props and costumes. It has been a remarkable collaboration to put magic on stage, our production is full of staged tricks that lift the audience out of the ordinary and into the fantastical. Tell me about the cast and how they're bringing their characters to life. One of the most exciting aspects of directing is casting. It's a new adventure each time, and I feel so lucky that we have an incredibly talented group working on this production. When working on a piece that has so many familiar characters, the actors have to find the nuances to bring them to life. What are you most looking forward to about seeing the show come together? I am looking forward to seeing the whole picture come together for an audience. Coming out of the pandemic and difficult times, this story can connect to so many different people, whether it's about having the courage to set out on a journey alone or as a reminder that no one is alone. What do you hope audiences who see the show come away with? 
I think that audiences will see themselves in these characters. We're all hopeful, flawed, and wandering into the woods and hoping to find our way home, and quote, into the woods, shows us that in a magical and musical way. For information and tickets, visit arvadacenter.org. Are ye ready for another Pirate Fest? Pirate Fest, one of the North Glen's biggest events of the year, is back to take scallywags and landlubbers alike on a wild ride, and a whole slew of events for the entire family. The annual event kicks off with the Pirate Night from 6 to 10 p.m. on Friday, September 16th, and continues with the actual festival from noon to 6 p.m. on Saturday, September 17th, both at the North Glen Recreation Center and E.B. Rains Jr. Memorial Park. 11701 Community Center Drive. Attendees will be able to take part in a range of activities, including live music, food, costumes, and the cardboard regatta boat race. Get the full schedule and information at thepiratefest.com. Take to the sky in a B-17 Texas Raider. There's no better way to connect with history than seeing it take flight in person right in front of you. That's just the opportunity that Wings Over the Rockies Exploration of Flight 13005 Wings Way in Inglewood is offering with its B-17 Texas Raiders Showcase, which is being held from Saturday, September 17th through Thursday, the 22nd. According to provided information, the event will also feature the SB-2C Helldiver and SNJT-6. In addition to ground tours, a limited number of flights in these historic craft are available for purchase through the commemorative Air Force. For all the details on the showcase, visit wingsmuseum.org slash b-17-showcase. In Clark's Concert of the Week, The War on Drugs at Red Rocks. For the last 10 years plus, Philadelphia's The War on Drugs have been making some of the most ensorceling indie rock you're going to find anywhere. So, when I heard they were finally going to be playing Red Rocks Amphitheater, 18300 West Alameda Parkway in Morrison this summer, I know the group would absolutely understand the assignment. The show is finally upon us, with the band playing at 7 p.m. on Monday, September 19th. The group will be joined by Colt Faves, Alves. Get your tickets at AXS.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E.reader at Hotmail.com. Air pollution hurts baby gut biome. Particles slash good bacteria in infants, a CU study says. By Michael Booth, Colorado Sun. The healthy gut microbiome of babies living in high-pollution areas is under threat from particulates from vehicles, industrial smokestacks, and wildfire smoke, leaving them more vulnerable to immune affections like diabetes or allergies, a new University of Colorado study finds. The findings from babies involved in a mother's milk study in Southern California go straight to the heart of a series of environmental justice and air pollution laws passed in Colorado in recent years. State lawmakers and regulators are targeting pollution concentrated in lower-income and minority neighborhoods and overhauling permitting and transportation spending to combat what they have called historic injustice. 
The researchers say the study published in the August edition of the scientific science journal Gut Microbes is, quote, the first to show a link between inhaled pollutants and changes in infant micro, microbial health during this critical window of development. The new CU study bolsters previous research about the health impacts of air pollution on adults, said Juan Madrid, a clean air and transportation advocate with Colorado Green Latinos. Half of Adams County births in 2020 and 2021, and a third of Denver births were of Latino mothers, Madrid noted. So the results of this study are alarming, as we know that many Latinos live in disproportionately impacted communities in Adams County and North Denver, he said. Anti-pollution activists often target South Adams County and North Denver because of the Suncor oil refinery, the Cherokee generating station, multiple interstates jammed with truck traffic, numerous heavy industries, and a history of metals smelting. Quote, this study adds to a growing body of evidence that breathing pollution harms more than just our lungs, said Lori Anderson, Colorado Field Organizer for Moms Clean Air Force. Babies and children are especially vulnerable. Here in Colorado, where we have persistent air pollution problems, this study increases the urgency of taking swift action to reduce pollution, especially in the most impacted communities. The infant gut collection of microbes is largely a blank slate until influenced by breast milk, solid food, the environment, any medicine intake, and other factors, according to the CU researchers. Beneficial microbes work to build appetite, immunity, insulin control, and brain functions. But bad microbes can influence asthma, type 2 diabetes, and other lifelong issues. PM2.5 particle pollution is limited by regulations, and each particle is about 170th the diameter of a human hair. The particles are emitted by car and truck fossil fuel exhaust. Coal-fired power plants or chemical emissions from factories, burning forests, and other sources. Colorado is not currently in violation of EPA limits on PM2.5, in the way that it violates ozone caps. But decades of regulation are just starting to have an impact, and low-income neighborhoods near refineries, power plants, and busy highways are much more exposed than others. Bad wildfire seasons like those in 2020 and 2021 wipe out a lot of progress. The research also looked at markers from slightly larger particles, PM10 and nitrogen dioxide, primarily a vehicle-related emission. The results speak to a crucial age of development where the environment sticks with you, the CU researchers say. They talked about the study in a week of record heat in Denver and much of Colorado and where state officials called another series of Ozone Action Day alerts, cautioning those in urban areas vulnerable to some forms of air pollution. Quote, I want to be able to arm individuals and communities with the information needed to fight for change, said Tanya Aldrete, study co-author and assistant professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado. The CU study piggybacked on a mother's milk study by genetically analyzing fecal samples from 103 primarily Latino infants in Los Angeles, 
Alderete learned of the cohort and was able to gain access to the genetic data while she worked on her PhD at the University of Southern California. The infant's health data was overlaid with hourly pollution samples in their area that are taken constantly by the EPA. Those exposed to the most PM2.5 lost 60% of a bacterium that decreases inflammation and aids infant brain development. Those exposed to the most PM10, slightly larger particles, had 85% more of a bacterium associated with inflammation. Alderete's earlier research on air pollution and microbes looked at about 50 young adults, showing that air pollution exposures from nearby high-traffic roads, quote, was associated with bacteria in the gut, she said, and those bacteria had been linked with obesity, type 2 diabetes, and insulin sensitivity. Those results, Alderete said, had been replicated in a larger sample of young adults. The researchers have also received funding and approval to follow the Southern California babies through six years to check on the long-term impacts of their gut biome findings. Quote, we're going to also be considering individual behavioral factors as well as the environment, Alderete said. If there is this association with air pollution and the gut bacteria, how long does that persist? Do we see that over the course of development? And the question is, what kind of health implications does that have? The study is not able to distinguish the varied influence of the child's indoor environmental environment on the same intestinal biome issues. Home cooking creates particulates that can influence personal health, as well as other behavioral or environmental factors such as burning candles or having access to home air filtration. In the meantime, the researchers say all families should take the easiest precautions against local air pollution. Avoid exercising near traffic or industrial areas, open windows, or use stove vents during home cooking that may create particulates and seek a low-cost air filtration system. As always, they should emphasize that moms should continue breastfeeding as long as possible. One of the most crucial ways to support a healthy baby biome and brain development. Quote, what we do know is that breastfeeding can act as a very potent beneficial probiotic, Alderete said. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.